0: Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Yeah, it's been a while. And yeah, I'm sort of getting back into the whole game from a, I don't know, a long overdue sort of self-imposed aquarium industry sabbatical. And I'm looking at things a little bit more objectively than I did before. Well, I was always pretty objective, but it became increasingly challenging for me to keep it that way after seeing how the hobby seems to be I don't know, coalescing around aesthetics and superficial things above almost all else when talking about natural aquarium systems. And it's really obvious when you step away like I did and sort of explore social media from afar. Like, we have these ideas out there, yet the hobby in its most popular form is embracing this really superficial approach to representing nature in our tanks. And I say nature in air quotes. During my little time away, I've had a lot of discussions with all sorts of fellow hobbyists about how we approach the creation of our aquariums. And it was pretty enlightening to interact with people from different hobby specialties, not only you know, to understand their POV, but to see some common threads in our philosophies and our approaches. And one of the topics which kept coming up during and after conversations was thinking on a deeper level about how to more faithfully replicate the natural habitats of many of the fishes that we love so much. And I'm talking about this from the function aspect, not simply creating cool-looking tanks. Having a little bit of faith that the way nature functions is as engaging and beautiful as the way it looks. And of course, the idea that there's all sorts of interesting influences on these natural habitats created by the surrounding terrestrial environment and the microbial associations which occur in the substrates, the leaves, the wood, and other materials which comprise them is a big part of it. The relationship between terrestrial habitats and the aquatic environment is just becoming increasingly apparent, particularly in areas in which blackwater habitats are found, for example. And the the lack of suspended sediments, which create a so-called nutrient-poor condition in these aquatic habitats, doesn't do much to facilitate in situ production of aquatic food sources. Rather, it places the emphasis on external factors. There's a good example of land uh, and of course, what is the external factor? Land. So, the terrestrial environment influencing the aquatic environment. Think about that just for a second. So, many blackwater systems are simply too poor in nutrients to offer alternative food sources to fishes. Yet, there's tons of fishes, right? So, the importance of the relationship between the fishes and their surrounding terrestrial habitat, i.e., the forests or meadows which are inundated seasonally, is therefore really obvious. That likely explains the significant amount of insects and other terrestrial food sources that ichthyologists find during gut content analysis of many fishes found in these habitats. As a side note, if you're ever interested in how your fishes really live, the ecology of your fishes, one of the most interesting ways to learn about that is to Look in the uh, ichthyological descriptions of your fishes or go on Fishbase or whatever, and look at the gut content analysis. Look at what they eat. Uh, In type papers on the fishes, you'll often find a whole section on that, and it's really fascinating. It gives you an idea of what's found in that environment, what really the environment is like. As we've hinted on previously, the availability of food at different times of the year in natural ecosystems also contributes to the composition of the fish community which does vary from season to season based on the relative abundance of these resources it's another example of the unique interdependencies between land and water and want another one how about when trees fall we've talked about this many times over the years it's not uncommon for a tree to fall in the rainforest with all that punishing rain and saturated ground conspiring to easily knock over pretty much anything that's not firmly rooted. And of course, when these trees fall over, they often fall into streams or in the case of Varzea or Agapo environments in the Amazon, the ones I'm totally obsessed with, they fall and are submerged in the inundated forest floor when the waters return. And of course, they immediately impact their now terrestrial or excuse me, aquatic environment, fulfilling several functions, providing a physical barrier or separation from currents, offering territories for fishes to spawn in, providing a substrate for algae and biofilms to multiply on, and providing places for fishes to forage among and to hide in. An entire community of aquatic life forms uses the fallen tree for all sorts of purposes, and the tree trunks and the parks will last for many years, fulfilling this vital role in the aquatic ecosystems that they now reside in every time the waters return. Of all the botanical materials that we employ in our aquariums, None, of course, are more common, well-studied, or simply ubiquitous in the aquatic habitats than leaves. In nature, leaf litter zones comprise one of the richest and most diverse biotopes in the tropical ecosystem. Yet they, at least until recently, have been seldom replicated in the aquarium. Now, more so than the years past, a lot more. But I wouldn't exactly call aquariums configured to replicate leaf litter habitats, you know, common. So why is this? I think it's been due, in a large part, to the lack of a real understanding about what this biotope is all about, not to mention the understanding of the practicality of creating one in the aquarium. Sure, people have thrown leaves in aquariums for years, long before Tannin ever came in 2015, but I don't think people thought about it as a functional aspect of the, of the aquarium ecosystem. Oh, sure, we've thought about you know, tinting the water with leaves and stuff like that, but what about the ecological considerations? A lot of people are just flat out put off by the idea of having leaves because, you know, they start decomposing and the biofilms and fungal growth and bacteria, and it adds to the bio load of the tank. And well, is that good or bad? It's important to understand that a leaf litter bed in nature, or the aquarium for that matter, is a rich ecosystem. It provides food and shelter to a really diverse community of organisms, ranging from fungi to bacterial biofilms. And of course, fishes and invertebrates, which live amongst and feed directly upon The fungi and the decomposing leaves and the botanical materials that uh, accumulate within it contribute to the breakdown of these materials as well. Aquatic fungi can't break down the leaf matrix and make the energy, uh, excuse me, they can break down the leaf matrix and they can make the energy within these materials available to feeding animals that live in these habitats. So you want more proof? There was an interesting little gem I found in my research, um, and I'll just read the quote for you. There's evidence that detritivores selectively feed on conditioned leaves, i.e. those previously colonized by fungi. Fungi can alter the food quality and palatability of leaf detritus, affecting shredder growth rates. Shredders are those animals that, that tear apart leaves. Than uh, eat them animals that feed on a diet rich in fungi have a higher growth rates and fecundity than those fed on poorly colonized leaves. Some shredders prefer to feed on leaves that are colonized by fungi, whereas others consume fungal mycelium that 's the little hairs selectively. So in other words, uh, conditioned leaves in this context are those which have been previously colonized by fungi. So they make that energy within leaves and the botanical materials available to higher organisms like fishes and invertebrates. So all these animals that feed on this stuff are utilizing the food source that they're, the energy that's locked up within these materials. It's, now, it's easy in the aquarium to get scared by this stuff. It looks like, It looks bad, right? Surprisingly, it's even easier, though, to exploit it as a food source for your animals. This is a huge point that we can't emphasize enough. Sure, outside of maybe some people that keep shrimp and maybe a few intrepid fish breeders that sort of are starting to come around to the idea of, uh, you know, decomposing leaves and stuff like that, it's been largely ignored. Uh, Again, here's another interesting excerpt from an academic paper on Amazonian blackwater leaf litter communities by biologist Peter Allen Henderson, one of my personal heroes in this little genre, and it provides some context for those of us considering replicating these communities, these leaf litter communities in our tanks. He says, life within the leaf litter is not a crowded, chaotic scramble for space and food. Each species occupies a subregion defined by physical variables such as flow and oxygen content, water depth, litter depth, and particle size. This subtle division of space is the key to understanding the maintenance of diversity. While subdivision of time is also evident with, for example, gymnotids, that are knife fishes, hunting by night and cichlids hunting by day, this is only possible when each species has its space within which to hide. So in other words, leaf litter beds facilitate and accommodate really diverse populations of fishes. And we should consider this when creating and or stocking our botanical method aquarium systems. It's not just about the look. Now, again, talking more about leaf litter, some litter beds, you know, form in what stream ecologists call meanders, which are little stream structures that form when moving water in a stream erodes the outer banks and widens its what's called the valley and the inner part of the river has less energy and deposits silt or in our instances leaves in that area so there's a whole fascinating science to river and stream structure and with so many implications for understanding how these structures and mechanisms affect fish population occurrence behavior and ecology it's well worth studying for aquarium interpretation we haven't been doing that for years So a ton of academic material that's worth looking at Did you get that part where I mentioned the lower energy parts of the watercourses tend to accumulate leaves and sediments and stuff? Well, it's logical, right? It's also interesting because, as we know, fishes and their food items tend to aggregate in these areas. And embracing the theme of a litter or botanical bed or even wood placement in the context of a stream structure in the aquarium is kind of cool, kind of pioneering, right? Incorporating leaf litter in our aquariums opens up all sorts of possibilities for interesting experiments, ranging from... Community displays to have fry-rearing systems. I mean, you can go with just a few leaves in your tank, or you can really go crazy with a deep bed of leaf litter in your tank. It's wide open for experimentation. Well, how do you create one? Well, it's not particularly complicated, right? Simply add a selection of prepared leaves of your choice to your aquarium. Done. I mean, simple. In a brand new tank, devoid of fishes, you can add as many as you want all at once. In an established populated tank, you got to build this up, you know, slowly and and gradually over the course of several weeks, monitoring the environmental impacts regularly to gauge for yourself any issues which may arise along the way. It's common sense, right? How many leaves, what kind, and how often to add them is a topic that's open for discussion and debate, really. I periodically sort of ponder and discuss the idea of creating a really deep leaf litter bed in my aquarium to more accurately replicate some of the litter beds found in South America, Asia, Africa, and elsewhere. By deep, though, I'm talking about 6 inches to 12 inches, that's about 15 to 30 centimeters. Yeah, there are deeper leaf litter beds in these areas, several feet, for example, or meters, but for practical aquarium display purposes, I I suppose the rational upper limit is more like the 12 inch or 30 centimeter range, or, or is it? I mean, maybe you can go as deep as you want. We simply don't know right now. No one's really experimenting with this at the moment. As a hobby, we're too caught up in the look, right? Okay, back to the function thing again. In these types of habitats, fishes and other organisms, you know, that are present and their processes also create not only the basis of a food web, but the development of an entire community of codependent organisms, which work together to process nutrients and support life forms all along the chain. This is really cool, fundamental stuff. We don't talk about this a lot in the context of aquariums. When we encourage, rather than remove these organisms when they appear, i.e., oh, fungi, get the siphon, get the shit out. When we when we let it go and grow, we're actually helping perpetuate these processes. I can't stress how important it is to let these various organisms multiply. And I'm not just talking about talking the talk and like, oh yeah, I've got leaf litter in my tank. Let that shit decompose. Let it accumulate the biofilms, the fungal growths. Let it break down in your tank. And we need to rethink our relationship with leaf litter, with detritus, with decomposing botanical materials and sediments in our tanks. Yeah, I'm asking you not only to leave them be, but to encourage their accumulation, to foster the development and the prosperity of the organisms which work them. It's a fundamental mental shift, one of many we've asked you to do over the years. Once again, I have to at least ask the rather long question. Are these things, you know, detritus and decomposing leaves, etc., really problematic for an otherwise well-managed aquarium, optimized to take advantage of their presence, Or do they constitute an essential component of a closed aquatic ecosystem, one which can actually provide some benefits, i.e. supplemental nutrition, for the resident fishes and the community of life forms which support them? Okay, what a question, right? The beauty of this is that we're all able to answer it. Blurring the lines, as we like to say here, between nature and the aquarium, at the very least from an aesthetic sense, and most important from a functional sense, provides, you know, proves just how far we've come as hobbyists, how damn good you guys are at what you do and how much more we can do when we turn to nature as an inspiration and embrace it for what it is. I'm not telling you to totally turn your back on the modern popular you know, aquascaping scene to disregard or dismiss all that brilliant work being done by aquascapers around the world you know, to develop some sense of superiority or snobbery and conclude that everyone who loves this stuff is a sheep. No, 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 not at all. Look, I'm simply the guy who's passing along the gentle reminder from nature that we have this great source of inspiration that really freaking works. It's worked for millennia. Rejoice in the fact that nature offers this endless variety of beauty, abundance, and challenge, and it's all there free for us to interpret as we like. It's not all perfect rule of thirds, you know, designer rocks or flawless layouts, stuff like that. Some of us just happen to like things a bit more, I don't know, natural than others. Yeah, blur the lines. And part and parcel of this philosophy is the practice of evolving your aquarium in ways that you may not have even really envisioned initially. Cutting yourself a little bit of slack. What do you mean by this, Felman? Well, okay, let's say you're kind of over your Southeast Asian, you know, cryptocorene biotope, and you're ready to head out to South America. So rather than tearing up the entire tank, removing all the plants, the hardscape, the leaves, and the botanicals, and the substrate, you opt to remove, say, only the plants, and perhaps the driftwood, and maybe some rocks from the tank, exchange a good quantity of the water, stuff like that. You leave the botanicals and the substrate layer intact, and you move on from there. Ooh, crazy, you're a fucking rebel, Felman. No, 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 I know, this isn't exactly earth-shattering. But in the world of botanical method aquariums, the idea of leaving the substrate and the leaf-litter botanical bed intact as you remodel isn't exactly a crazy one. It's not a stretch. And conceptually, it sort of replicates what occurs in nature, doesn't it? a bit different from the popular, you know, Instagram aquascaping approach of, I'm done with this tank, let's tear it apart and start with an empty glass box, you know. Most underwater habitats emerge, accumulate, populate, evolve, and change, like constantly. Yeah, think about that for just a second. As we almost constantly discuss here, habitats like flooded forests, meadows, vernal pools, igrape, and swollen streams tend to encompass terrestrial habitats or go through phases where they are terrestrial habitats for a good part of the year. Or perhaps they're different types of aquatic habitats at different times of the year. In these wild habitats, the leaves, the branches, the soils, and the other botanical materials remain in place or are added to by dynamic seasonal processes like current weather or cyclical leaf drop from trees. For the most part, the soil, the branches, and a fair amount of the more durable seed pods and stuff like that remain present during both phases the formerly terrestrial environment is now transformed into this earthy, twisted, incredibly rich, complex habitat, aquatic habitat, by new, which fishes have evolved over eons to live in and utilize for food protection and complex protective spawning areas. I can't stress enough how insanely cool and important it is to recognize this dynamic and its impact on fishes. I can't stress how important it is to go beyond just the look of of the aquarium and think about how our systems work as ecosystems. I know we've talked about this stuff endlessly here. But each time I think about this and play with this idea, my mind goes crazy with inspiration. You talk about what, we drove, what sort of drove me to take a little break from the hobby. It was this disgusting, to me, this disgusting excess of superficiality that I saw going on. All these kind of ridiculous tanks that were so-called natural... And, you know, appropriating terms and, and ideas, but not pulling them off uh, in a natural way. And passing that along as the cutting edge of aquarium hobby, you know, husbandry or whatever, that really got to me. It really got me mad. I guess that was part of it. it I spent the the better part of seven or eight years just going crazy with this stuff, deep diving into the minority little world. And then to see people going with it was gratifying, but to see people going with it on the most superficial of levels and passing on not only downright misinformation, but just stupidity, I guess it really got to me and it made me want to just pull away for a little bit and reevaluate that and some other things that made me look at my relationship with the hobby and the industry. And it was kind of a good time to pull away and it felt good. And I have to admit, and we'll talk about this more in an upcoming podcast uh, where I'll have a very special guest. Sometimes you have to take that mental detachment when you're so deeply involved. I've been in this hobby for a lifetime. I didn't pull away from the hobby. I pulled away from my social aspect of the hobby. And that was interesting. And looked at my relationship with both the business and the hobby itself. And upon evaluating that, I realized that the things that I love, I still really, really love. And I always will. And it makes me really excited to know that you can take a little break now and then step back look at things, and then get right back at it. I've got a lot of people whose minds I need to change on some things. A lot of people we still need to educate on our wacky ideas. And a lot of people to get excited. It's a really, really big world out there in nature. There's a lot to inspire and a whole lot more to replicate out there. So why don't you just stay with me on the rest of this journey. It'll be a lot of fun. It's good to be back. Stay inspired. Stay passionate. Stay curious. Stay committed. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The ten.